section five of early greek philosophy and other essays by frederick nietzsche this librivox recording is in the public domain section five homer's contest preface to an unwritten book eighteen seventy two when one speaks of humanity the notion lies at the bottom that humanity is that which separates and distinguishes man from nature but such a distinction does not in reality exist the natural qualities and the properly called human ones have grown up inseparably together man in his highest and noblest capacities is nature and bears in himself her awful twofold character his abilities generally considered dreadful and inhuman are perhaps indeed the fertile soil out of which alone can grow forth all humanity in emotions actions and works thus the greeks the most humane men of ancient times have in themselves a trait of cruelty of tiger-like pleasure in destruction a trait which in the grotesquely magnified image of the hellene in alexander the great is very plainly visible which however in their whole history as well as in their mythology must terrify us who meet them with the emasculate idea of modern humanity when alexander has the feet of bodus the brave defender of gaza bored through and binds the living body to his chariot in order to drag him about exposed to the scorn of his soldiers that is a sickening caricature of achilles who at night ill uses hector's corpse by a similar trailing but even this trait has for us something offensive something which inspires horror it gives us a peep into the abysses of hatred with the same sensation perhaps we stand before the bloody and insatiable self-laceration of two greek parties as for example in the corsarian revolution when the victor in a fight of the cities according to the law of warfare executes the whole male population and sells all the women and children into slavery we see in the sanction of such a law that the greek deemed it a positive necessity to allow his hatred to break forth unimpeded in such moments the compressed and swollen feeling relieved itself the tiger bounded forth a voluptuous cruelty shone out of his fearful eye why had the greek sculptor to represent again and again war and fights in innumerable repetitions extended human bodies whose sinews are tightened through hatred or through the recklessness of triumph fighters wounded and writhing with pain or the dying with the last rattle in their throat why did the whole greek world exult in the fighting scenes of the iliad i am afraid we do not understand them enough in greek fashion and that we should even shudder if for once we did understand them thus but what lies as the mother womb of the hellenic behind the homeric world in the latter by the extremely artistic definiteness 
and the calm and purity of the lines we are already lifted far above the purely material amalgamation its colours by an artistic deception appear lighter milder warmer its men in this coloured warm illumination appear better and more sympathetic but where do we look if no longer guided and protected by homer's hand we step backwards into the pre-homeric world only into night and horror into the products of a fancy accustomed to the horrible what earthly existence is reflected in the loathsome awful theologian allure a life swayed only by the children of the night strife amorous desires deception age and death let us imagine the suffocating atmosphere of hesiod's poem still thickened and darkened and without all the mitigations and purifications which poured over hellas from delphi and the numerous seats of the gods if we mix this thickened boeotian air with the grim voluptuousness of the etruscans then such a reality would extort from us a world of myths within which uranus cronus and zeus and the struggles of the titans would appear as a relief combat in this brooding atmosphere is salvation and safety the cruelty of victory is the summit of life's glories and just as in truth the idea of greek law has developed from murder and expiation of murder so also nobler civilization takes her first wreath of victory from the altar of the expiation of murder behind that bloody age stretches a wave furrow deep into hellenic history the names of orpheus of musaeus and their cults indicate to what consequences the uninterrupted sight of a world of warfare and cruelty led to the loathing of existence to the conception of this existence as a punishment to be born to the end to the belief in the identity of existence and indebtedness but these particular conclusions are not specifically hellenic through them greece comes into contact with india and the orient generally the hellenic genius had ready yet another answer to the question what does a life of fighting and of victory mean and gives this answer in the whole breadth of greek history in order to understand the latter we must start from the fact that the greek genius admitted the existing fearful impulse and deemed it justified whereas in the orphic phase of thought was contained the belief that life with such an impulse as its root would not be worth living strife and the pleasure of victory were acknowledged and nothing separates the greek world more from ours than the colouring derived hence of some ethical ideas for example of eris and of envy when the traveller pausanias during his wanderings through greece visited the helicon a very old copy of the first didactic poem of the greeks the works and days of hesiod was shown to him inscribed upon plates of lead and severely damaged by time and weather however he recognised this much that unlike the usual copies it had not at its head that little hymnus on zeus but began at once with the declaration two eris goddesses are on earth this is one of the most noteworthy hellenic thoughts 
and worthy to be impressed on the newcomer immediately at the entrance gate of greek ethics one would like to praise the one heiress just as much as to blame the other if one uses one's reason for these two goddesses have quite different dispositions for the one the cruel one furthers the evil war and feud no mortal likes her but under the yoke of need one pays honour to the burdensome heiress according to the decree of the immortals she as the elder gave birth to black night zeus the high ruling one however placed the other heiress upon the roots of the earth and among men as a much better one she urges even the unskilled man to work and if one who lacks property beholds another who is rich then he hastens to sow in similar fashion and to plant and to put his house in order the neighbour vies with the neighbour who strives after fortune good is this heiress to men the potter also has a grudge against the potter and the carpenter against the carpenter the beggar envies the beggar and the singer the singer the two last verses which treat of the odium figulinum appear to our scholars to be incomprehensible in this place according to their judgment the predicates grudge and envy fit only the nature of the evil heiress and for this reason they do not hesitate to designate these verses as spurious or thrown by chance into this place for that judgment however a system of ethics other than the hellenic must have inspired these scholars unawares for in these verses to the good heiress aristotle finds no offence and not only aristotle but the whole greek antiquity thinks of spite and envy otherwise than we do and agrees with hesiod who first designates as an evil one that heiress who leads men against one another to a hostile war of extermination and secondly praises another heiress as the good one who as jealousy spite envy incites men to activity but not to the action of war to the knife but to the action of contest the greek is envious and conceives of this quality not as a blemish but as the effect of a beneficent deity what a gulf of ethical judgment between us and him because he is envious he also feels with every superfluity of honour riches splendour and fortune the envious eye of a god resting on himself and he fears this envy in this case the latter reminds him of the transitoriness of every human lot he dreads his very happiness and sacrificing the best of it he bows before the divine envy this conception does not perhaps estrange him from his gods their significance on the contrary is expressed by the thought that with them man in whose soul jealousy is enkindled against every other living being is never allowed to venture into contest in the fight of thamyris with the muses of marsyris with apollo in the heart-moving fate of niobe appears the horrible opposition of the two powers who must never fight with one another man and god the greater and more sublime however a greek is the brighter in him appears the ambitious flame devouring everybody who runs with him 
on the same track aristotle once made a list of such contests on a large scale among them as the most striking instance how even a dead person can still incite a living one to consuming jealousy thus for example aristotle designates the relation between the colophonian xenophanes and homer we do not understand this attack on the national hero of poetry in all its strength if we do not imagine as later on also with plato the root of this attack to be the ardent desire to step into the place of the overthrown poet and to inherit his fame every great hellene hands on the torch of the contest at every great virtue a new light is kindled if the young themistocles could not sleep at the thought of the laurels of miltiades so his early awakened bent released itself only in the long emulation with aristides in that uniquely noteworthy purely instinctive genius of his political activity which thucydides describes how characteristic are both question and answer when a notable opponent of pericles is asked whether he or pericles was the better wrestler in the city and he gives the answer even if i throw him down he denies that he has fallen attains his purpose and convinces those who saw him fall if one wants to see that sentiment unashamed in its naive expressions the sentiment as to the necessity of contest lest the state's welfare be threatened one should think of the original meaning of ostracism as for example the ephesians pronounced it at the banishment of hermidor among us nobody shall be the best if however someone is the best then let him be so elsewhere and among others why should not someone be the best because with that the contest would fail and the eternal life basis of the hellenic state would be endangered later on ostracism receives quite another position with regard to the contest it is applied when the danger becomes obvious that one of the great contesting politicians and party leaders feels himself urged on in the heat of the conflict towards harmful and destructive measures and dubious coup d'etat the original sense of this peculiar institution however is not that of a safety valve but that of a stimulant the all-excelling individual was to be removed in order that the contest of forces might reawaken a thought which is hostile to the exclusiveness of genius in the modern sense but which assumes that in the natural order of things there are always several geniuses which incite one another to action as much also as they hold one another within the bounds of moderation that is the kernel of the hellenic contest conception it abominates autocracy and fears its dangers it desires as a preventive against the genius a second genius every natural gift must develop itself by contest thus the hellenic national pedagogy demands whereas modern educators fear nothing as much as the unchaining of the so-called ambition here one fears selfishness as the evil in itself with the exception of the jesuits who agree with the ancients and who possibly for that reason are the most deficient educators of our time 
they seem to believe that selfishness that is the individual element is only the most powerful agents but that it obtains its character as good and evil essentially from the aims towards which it strives to the ancients however the aim of the agonistic education was the welfare of the whole of the civic society every athenian for instance was to cultivate his ego in contest so far that it should be of the highest service to athens and should do the least harm it was not unmeasured and immeasurable as modern ambition generally is the youth thought of the welfare of his native town when he vied with others in running throwing or singing it was her glory that he wanted to increase with his own it was to his town's gods that he dedicated the wreaths which the umpires as a mark of honour set upon his head every greek from childhood felt within himself the burning wish to be in the contest of the towns an instrument for the welfare of his own town in this his selfishness was kindled into flame by this his selfishness was bridled and restricted therefore the individuals in antiquity were freer because their aims were nearer and more tangible modern man on the contrary is everywhere hampered by infinity like the fleet-footed achilles in the allegory of the iliad zeno infinity impedes him he does not even overtake the tortoise but as the youths to be educated were brought up struggling against one another so their educators were in turn in emulation amongst themselves distrustfully jealous the great musical masters pindar and simonides stepped side by side in rivalry the sophist the higher teacher of antiquity meets his fellow sophist even the most universal kind of instruction through the drama was imparted to the people only under the form of an enormous wrestling of the great musical and dramatic artists how wonderful and even the artist has a grudge against the artist and the modern man dislikes in an artist nothing so much as the personal battle feeling whereas the greek recognizes the artist only in such a personal struggle there where the modern suspects weakness of the work of art the hellene seeks the source of his highest strength that which by way of example in plato is of special artistic importance in his dialogues is usually the result of an emulation with the art of the orators of the sophists of the dramatists of his time invented deliberately in order that at the end he could say behold i can also do what my great rivals can yea i can do it even better than they no protagoras has composed such beautiful myths as i no dramatist such a spirited and fascinating whole as the symposium no orator penned such an oration as i put up in the georgias and now i reject all that together and condemn all imitative art only the contest made me a poet a sophist an orator what a problem unfolds itself there before us if we ask about the relationship between the contest and the conception of the work of art if on the other hand we remove the contest from greek life then we look at once into the pre-homeric abyss of horrible savagery hatred and pleasure in destruction 
this phenomenon alas shows itself frequently when a great personality was owing to an, an enormously brilliant deed suddenly withdrawn from the contest and became hors de concours according to his and his fellow-citizens judgment almost without exception the effect is awful and if one usually draws from these consequences the conclusion that the greek was unable to bear glory and fortune one should say more exactly that he was unable to bear fame without further struggle and fortune at the end of the contest there is no more distinct instance than the fate of miltiades placed upon a solitary height and lifted far above every fellow-combatant through his incomparable success at marathon he feels a low thirsting for revenge awakened within himself against a citizen of power with whom he had been at enmity long ago to satisfy his desire he misuses reputation the public exchequer and civic honour and disgraces himself conscious of his ill success he falls into unworthy machinations he forms a clandestine and godless connection with timo a priestess of demeter and enters at night the sacred temple from which every man was excluded after he has leaped over the wall and comes ever nearer the shrine of the goddess the dreadful horror of a panic-like terror suddenly seizes him almost prostrate and unconscious he feels himself driven back and leaping the wall once more he falls down paralyzed and severely injured the siege must be raised and a disgraceful death impresses its seal upon a brilliant heroic career in order to darken it for all posterity after the battle at marathon the envy of the celestials has caught him and this divine envy breaks into flames when it beholds man without rival without opponent on the solitary height of glory he now has beside him only the gods and therefore he has them against him these however betray him into a deed of the hubris and under it he collapses let us well observe that just as miltiades perishes so the noblest greek states perish when they by merit and fortune have arrived from the race-course at the temple of nike athens which had destroyed the independence of her allies and avenged with severity the rebellions of her subjected foes sparta which after the battle of Egospotamoi used her preponderance over hellas in a still harsher and more cruel fashion both these as in the case of miltiades brought about their ruin through deeds of the hubris as a proof that without envy jealousy and contesting ambition the hellenic state like the hellenic man degenerates he becomes bad and cruel thirsting for revenge and godless in short he becomes pre-homeric and then it needs only a panic in order to bring about his fall and to crush him sparta and athens surrender to persia as themistocles and alcibiades have done they betray hellenism after they have given up the noblest hellenic fundamental thought the contest and alexander the corson copy and abbreviation of greek history now invents the cosmopolitan hellene and the so-called hellenism End of section five